Today's reading comes from the book of Philemon. 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 I'm so sorry. It's funny because I had practiced that. And then, of course, I say it the wrong way. Okay. It's been a tiring weekend. I'm so sorry. Philemon. Yes. Today's reading comes from the book of Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers because I hear of your love for all the saints and the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your participation in the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. For I have great joy and encouragement from your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. For this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. I, Paul, as an elderly man, And now also, as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. I became his father while I was in chains. Once he was useless to you, but now he is useful, both to you and to me. I am sending him back to you. I am sending my very own heart. I wanted to keep him with me so that in my imprisonment for the gospel, he might serve me in your place. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent, so that your good deed might not be out of obligation, but of your own free will. For perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time, so that you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. He is especially so to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord." So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would me. And if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe me even your very self. Yes, brother, may I benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Since I am confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, since I hope that through your prayers I will be restored to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Sohi. It is a hard name to pronounce. I've been doubting myself even as I've been saying Philemon, Philemon so much. I'm like, is it Philemon or is it Philemon or something like that? But I think it is Philemon, and this morning we are going to wrap up our series. We've been in for quite some time on Colossians and on the book of Philemon. These books, uh, these letters, Colossians and Philemon, they belong together because they were actually written 
at the same time by the Apostle Paul, and they were delivered together to the same church. Colossians to the whole church, Philemon was delivered and given to a member of that church, a leader of that church, in fact, uh, named Philemon. So Philemon is an easily overlooked letter in the New Testament. If you're flipping through the New Testament, you might just miss it because it's tucked away right after Titus, before Hebrews, and it's just one page, a very short letter. But I said last week, I said the same thing, Philemon is a letter we can't afford to overlook. It might be, out of all the books of the Bible, the most personal, and I think it's one of the most powerful stories that we have unfolded for us in the pages of Scripture. Philemon is a letter about what is, at so many levels, a very messy and broken and complicated situation and relationship. A lot like our relationships. That can be very broken and very messy and very complicated. But even more than that, it's a story about how God worked in this broken, messy, and complicated relationship to bring about this beautiful, this powerful, this incredible story of reconciliation. And it's here in the New Testament, I believe it's here in the Bible, to give us hope that God can work the same kind of thing in us and in our relationships. So in order to understand, if you weren't here last week, we looked at this letter once already. We're going to look at it one more time this week. But if you weren't here or you need a review, Philemon is about three people. You need to know who these three people are. Kids, I know you have your bulletin and some of the notes here. Um, I'll answer some of those questions about who these three characters are for you. There's the Apostle Paul. He's the one who wrote the letter, and he is in prison, likely in Rome. He wrote this letter while in prison. Philemon was a leader in the Colossian church. Earlier in his life, Philemon had met the Apostle Paul. Probably not in Colossae where he lived, but somewhere else. He had met the Apostle Paul, and through Paul's explanation, he had heard about Jesus. He had heard the gospel. He became a Christian. And so Philemon and Paul had a very close relationship, a very strong friendship. And then there's Onesimus. There's Paul, Philemon, and Onesimus. Onesimus, we're fast-forwarding many years later, was a slave or a bondservant in Philemon's house. He had run away from that house. He had stolen in order to survive from Philemon, and he had fled. He wound up in the city of Rome, and that's where he crossed paths with the Apostle Paul. He heard about Jesus from Paul, he heard the Christian message, and he became a Christian. So Paul and Onesimus had this very close and special bond between each other as well. So let's step back and let's talk about the story that happened between these three people. First, um, slavery, bond service in the ancient world was a fact of life. It was a horrible fact of life, but it was an accepted practice. But that doesn't mean that slaves just accepted it. That doesn't mean that slaves didn't long for what every human being longs for. They wanted to be free. They longed for their freedom. Onesimus longed to be free, and he ended up devising a plan to run away. And one day he did it. He ran away from Philemon. He took what he needed to survive. He fled to the best place to disappear at the time, which was the biggest city, 
in that time, the city of Rome, the capital of the empire, everyone in Philemon's community would have known what had happened. His Christian friends and his non-Christian friends would have known, oh, your slave ran away. What did he do? He took from you? What are you going to do about it? What's going to happen? But many years probably had passed. We don't know exactly how much time, but the journey from Colossae to Rome was a 1,200-mile journey that Onesimus took on foot. While in Rome, maybe Onesimus fell on hard times. We don't know. Maybe he somehow heard that the Apostle Paul was in prison in Rome, and he remembered that name from his time living in Philemon's household. Maybe it was just an act of God's providence. Whatever the case, Onesimus somehow met Paul while he was in prison. He heard the gospel, he believed in Jesus, and then Paul and Onesimus together decided, now what? Paul said, I think you need to go back. I think you need to go back home. You need to reconcile. And so Paul wrote this letter that we just heard read, Philemon. And as I shared last week, I believe this letter not only appeals to Philemon to forgive Onesimus, to be reconciled with him, but in fact, to set him free. Something radical and unheard of at the time. Philemon could have put Onesimus to death. Legally, he had that right. This was very risky, this plan that Paul and Onesimus had. But Paul was confident in this broken, in this messy, in this complicated situation that God could work and that God would be at work. So if you imagine the scene, one day Onesimus shows up. He goes to Philemon's house. Maybe the church was gathered there. Maybe they were all there together. That's where they had their worship services. And there's a knock on the door. Onesimus shows up, and everyone is quiet. What's he doing here? And Philemon sees Onesimus enter back into his home. And can you imagine what he's th- thinking and feeling? You. You back here. And then he sees Tychicus, which was one of Paul's good friends, one of his ministry partners. Tychicus had two letters in his hand. One was the letter that we call Colossians, and one was Philemon. He takes this letter up to Philemon, as Philemon is probably just staring at Onesimus. He says, Paul wrote this for you. That's the letter that we have called Philemon. For my Christian friends, Philemon, for us, is a great example of gospel doctrine put into practice. Here's what happens when what we believe about Jesus and what he's done for us becomes the basis for and our resource for handling all the broken, messy conflicts, situations, and relationships in our lives. For Christians and for those of us here who are still asking questions about the Christian faith, still exploring it, Philemon is a letter that shows us how Christian belief, which sometimes is seen as a force for division in our world and unfortunately can be used as such, Philemon shows us how the Christian faith is, in fact, our best resource for reconciliation in our personal relationships and in a world that is so fractured and divided. So how are we going to walk through this? Three three steps, three points. Philemon, it's... Uh, In your outline, we'll put the slides up as well. Philemon shows us three things about the way to reconciliation. There's at least three steps. Motivation, 
Why be reconciled anyway? Identification, how to relate to the person that you're at odds with. And three, compensation. What do we do with the cost that's always involved in true and genuine reconciliation? So first, the first thing that this letter shows us about reconciliation is that it can never be forced. So first point on your outlines, kids, if you're writing these things and following along. The first step on the path toward gospel reconciliation is you can't force reconciliation between you and another person. And you can't force reconciliation between two people whom you want to see reconciled in their conflict. Look at how Paul approaches and appeals to his good friend Philemon. Look with me at verse 8. After his greeting and after his opening, Paul gets to the point of his letter. He gets right to it in verse 8. He says, Although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, I appeal to you on the basis of love. What is Paul saying? He's saying, I'm pretty bold in this situation, Philemon, because I'm pretty sure I know what the right thing is to do. But I'm not going to command you. Instead, I'm going to appeal to you on the basis of love. Why? It's because Paul doesn't want Philemon to act at merely an external level and say, just do it. It's a command. It's a law. Do it. Instead, he wants Philemon to act at the motivational level. Do it because you want to, out of love. Because reconciliation, genuine and true reconciliation, where people in conflict find peace, where people at odds become friends, that only can happen at the motivational level. It can never be forced. Paul ends in verse 21. If you look at verse 21, he says this, I'm confident of your obedience, knowing you will do even more than I say. I'm confident of your obedience. You'll do even more than I say. Is Paul just kind of manipulating Philemon? What is he doing there? No, it's confidence that Paul has in the power of Jesus to get into our lives in the motivational level, that the good we do is not out of obligation. It's not forced or coerced. But it's out, as he says in verse 15, it's out, or 14, he's, it's out of our own free will. God's will for us is that we experience true reconciliation. God commands, but he doesn't coerce us to obey because reconciliation can never be forced. Okay, we all know what a forced apology is like. Sometimes as parents, or sometimes in a, in a sticky situation, but often between uh, our kids, if you have multiple kids and you're a parent, you have to say, say, I'm sorry to your brother. Say, I'm sorry to your sister. Kids, have your parents ever told you that? Yeah, a couple. And for some reason, in those moments, the words, I'm sorry, it's like the hardest words ever to say in the human language. And so when you're forced to do it, and sometimes when you were a kid, or sometimes you've seen kids, and you say, say, I'm sorry, and it's like, I'm sorry. Well, what'd you say? I'm sorry. Or you just make a joke of it or whatever. It's so hard because it's forced. And that happens sometimes. We need to do that as parents. It's a part of training. It's a part of disciplining our kids and teaching them how important reconciliation is. But if you've received a forced apology... And somebody has just said, you know, I'm, I'm sorry for what I did. 
And you know they're just trying to get it over with. They're just trying to do uh, what they need to do to do the bare minimum just to move on. You know how that feels. It doesn't feel like reconciliation. It doesn't achieve reconciliation. It's just external coercion. In Philemon, we see one of the most important distinctions in Christianity illustrated. And that distinction is this. The difference between merely external obedience, coercion, command, the difference between that and obedience out of love, out of love for God and others. I have a, um, a chart. I just want to illustrate this. I'm basing this on an article I read that was based on Philemon. The difference between coercion and compliance, just obey the law, to hard obedience, fulfilling the law in love. Coercion and compliance, it doesn't lead to lasting change. It doesn't come from a conviction of why we are obeying. Just do it. I don't care why. Just do it. It does just the bare minimum to get by. I'm being forced to do this, so I'll just get it over with and I'll be done. And it stays at the external level, which when it comes to our conflicts and our relationships, it only just gives us temporary peace, a ceasefire. On the other hand, what does heart obedience look like? It leads to lasting change in our character and relationships. Understands not only the what behind obedience, but the why. It goes above and beyond what is required. As Paul says, Philemon, I know you're going to go above and beyond when God gets to your motivational level, not just the external level. And that leads to, that can lead to beautiful and true reconciliation. You see what's happening in this whole letter, in the letter of Philemon? Paul is saying, Philemon, I'm taking you out of column one, and I want to move you in everything I'm saying to you into column number two. The application for us, because we can't force reconciliation between two people or between us and another person. But when we don't When we don't see that happening, what do we do? Do we just give up? If it's not happening at the motivational level, do we just throw in the towel? Philemon says, no, there's another way. What we can do is to have our hearts softened. What we can do is to have our hearts melted and changed by love and appeal to others in conflict to soften and change their hearts in love too. Paul shows us what this looks like in this letter. You know, when we're in a conflict, what do we see? How do we see other people? What do we see when we look at other people? Isn't it just how they've wronged us? When we look at them, we say, this is how you've wronged me. This is the hurt that you've caused me. This is how you've disappointed me. And we see and we feel all that they owe us in order to make it right. But do you see what Paul is doing here? Paul is modeling for Philemon what it means to see Onesimus through the eyes of God. In Jesus. Verse 10. He says, He's my son. Onesimus is my son. Verse 2. He's no longer a slave. He's so much more. He's dearly loved. And then he calls him my very own heart. Kids, if you're using your kids' bulletin, I want you to turn to this page right here where you got. The letter being delivered, it says, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Last time we had a family service, I taught all of you a Greek word. It was the word panta, which means all things, because God cares about all things. All things matter to God. I want to teach you a new word today. One of my favorite, very favorite Greek words 
It's the word that Paul uses here for heart. And here it is. Splankna. I want you to say it with me. Kids, splankna. Splankna in, the, in this culture at the time was the word used for your gut, right here, where you feel the most deeply. This is the place, they called it the bowels or the gut or the intestines. They said, when I really love you, when I really have an affection for you, I feel it in my splankna. <laughs> and that's what Paul is saying about Onesimus. I love him so much. He's so, so dear to me. He's my son, dearly loved, my very own heart. This is how Onesimus is seen by God despite his sin, despite his past, despite his brokenness. And Paul is lovingly reminding Philemon, Philemon, this is how God sees you. Despite your sin and your brokenness in past, you are his son, dearly loved, his very own heart. And that's the first step. Ask God when we are in conflict, when we have such a hard time getting past how we've been hurt or disappointed, ask God that He might allow you to see the other person as He sees you in Christ. Ask God to melt and soften your heart. That's the first step. The second step on the way to reconciliation develops this further. How do we see someone with the eyes of love as God does when it's so hard? When we're so caught up in how we've been wronged and disappointed, how can we do that? Step two on the way to reconciliation is that it always takes you into another person's world. There's something very unique in this letter that Paul does that he doesn't do in any of his other letters. It's found in the very first verse. Look at verse one with me. In the opening, he says, as he refers to himself, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. The only time he introduces himself like this is in Philemon. Every other time he just says, I, Paul, or he says, I, Paul, the apostle, pointing to his calling, his authority, or I, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, pointing to his ministry. Here, only here, he says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. That's not the only time he calls himself a prisoner. In verses 9 and 10, he says it again. He says, I, Paul, I'm elderly, and now also I'm a prisoner. Again, in verse 13, he mentions his imprisonment for the gospel. And again, in verse 23, he speaks of Epaphras as his fellow prisoner. Five times in 25 verses, Paul says, Philemon, I'm a prisoner. Why is he emphasizing that in this letter? I think he's saying, Philemon, you don't know what it's like to be in chains. Philemon, you don't know what it's like to be a prisoner, to not have your freedom, but I do. Yes, Onesimus wronged you. In order to reconcile with him, you will need to enter into his world, as I have. And now I'm asking you to receive him as you would receive me. Would you set me free? Would you forgive me and reconcile with me if I had wronged you? Treat him as you would treat me. During the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln made a similar point. He said this, whenever I hear anyone arguing for slavery, I feel a strong impulse to see it tried on him personally. It's so good and powerful. How can we love someone who we are at odds with, we're in conflict with, 
We see them as the other. We see them as less than us. Love grows in our heart. Our heart begins to change. Our heart begins to melt for the person we are at odds with as we enter into their world. And there God works compassion and understanding. So application for us, intention in conflict, in a breakdown, both personal relationships and broader, we need to ask, what's going on in their world? What's it like to be them? And I can only know that, I can only feel it if I enter into their world. We often flip this upside down, completely upside down. I know because I do this. I often flip this completely upside down. Because when I'm in conflict with other people, if there's a disappointment or a tension, my first instinct is to say, they need to enter into my world. If everybody would just enter into the world of Eric, all would be well. We do this in parenting, if you have kids. You say, don't you understand? Like, I'm tired. There's a lot on my mind. I already know what's best for you. So if you just enter into the world of Eric, your father, then all will go well. And we won't have any we won't have any issues between us. Enter into my world. Or we can do that in, in our marriages with our spouses as well. We can say, I didn't mean to hurt you. Can enter into my world. Don't you know what I meant by that? Don't you know what's going on with me? Do you understand my needs? If you just understand me, enter into the world of Eric, then we won't have conflict here. Everything will be okay. So much of good parenting, though, comes from entering into the world of our kids. So much of a good marriage comes from entering into the world of our spouse. You see what Paul's doing here? He's lowering, he's lowering himself. He's humbling himself. He's emptying himself of all his rights, of all his titles. He says, I am just a prisoner. I'm entering into the world of a slave, the lowest on the social status rung of that day. I'm entering into a slave. What, what is Paul doing here? He's showing Philemon how to do for Onesimus what Jesus has done for us, for him. Jesus gave up his rights, his titles, his position to enter our world, to reconcile us to himself. The heart of reconciliation is knowing how fully Jesus has identified with us and entered into our world. I want to look at a cross-reference, another reference um, that speaks to this from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I have it printed for you there on the slides. It's a little bit long, but I think it's important that we take time to look at this because Paul here is talking about reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5. If you have your Bible, you can flip there with me. Paul says, from now on, we don't know anyone from a worldly perspective. So he's saying something has changed the way we view all people. Even if we've known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. See, the new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness 
of God. There's so much here. But what Paul is saying is God. He entered fully into our world. When he entered into our world, he says he didn't count our sin and our wrongdoing against us. He counted it against himself. So fully identifying with us that he became human, but even more than that, somehow it says he became sin. It's the only way we become righteous. In Jesus, God entered into this old and broken and sinful creation in order that we might enter into his new creation. Because of this, Paul says, we see everybody from a completely different perspective. It changes the way we see everyone. We see everyone through the eyes of reconciliation. Because if Jesus, who knew no sin, can identify with a sinner like me and enter into my world fully and completely, then I can identify and enter into the world of a fellow broken sinner like myself, even if they hurt me, even when they wrong me. I can begin to see them as he does, as I enter into their world with compassion and grace. So motivation. Reconciliation can't be forced. It comes from an inner motivation of love. Identification. We enter into the world of even those we are at odds with. And third, the third step on the way to reconciliation is compensation. Reconciliation always comes at a cost. We touched on this last week, but I think we need to spend some more time on it here again, coming at it from a different angle. For reconciliation to happen in this situation, the situation in Philemon, all parties had to address this issue. There was cost to Paul, there was cost to Onesimus, and there was cost to Philemon. It would have been very easy and convenient for Paul to say, hey, Onesimus, you became a Christian. You have been eternally changed forever. What's important here is the eternal, not the temporary. So here's what you should do. Just go on your way, hide out here in Rome, live free, and follow Jesus. But he said no. The right thing here to do in this situation is the costly thing. It's reconciliation. That doesn't mean Paul glossed over how Philemon was wronged by Onesimus. He knew there was a cost. In verse 18, he said, I am willing to pay the cost. What he stole from you, what he took from you, how he wronged you, charge it to my account. At this time, for a head of the household to forgive a slave, to let him go free, was unheard of. There would be great social cost for Philemon if he were to follow Paul's appeal. For Onesimus, we already said this is very risky, Philemon could have said, no, Paul, nice letter, but I'm not going to do it. He needs to be punished. I'm within my legal rights to do that. Very risky and costly to Onesimus. But did you know there was a cost for Paul also? The letter possibly could have been intercepted by one of the prison guards. They could have read it. It was unheard of to appeal to a slave owner on behalf of a slave. There's no such letter in the ancient world of any kind. And that could have been taken as further evidence that what Paul is doing is he's subverting the social order. Paul would have been in prison longer or he could have lost his own life. When God calls us to reconciliation, we should never, and I don't ever want to give the impression that it's easy and automatic and something that should come painless to us. 
It's never easy. It's never automatic. And it can never truly happen without a great cost, usually to all people involved. I recently came across a letter of reconciliation. I was very inspired by it. On Twitter, somebody shared it, and I think it was um, a story was, was done on it in CNN. CNN did a story on it. There's a picture. I want to show it to you. There's, there's money, and then there's a letter. There's $1,000. It doesn't look like $1,000 there, but the letter said there was $1,000 um, in this letter. And I want to read to you this letter. It says, Dear Carlota and family, I worked for you as a waitress very briefly back in the 1990s while a student at U of A. One of the waiters I worked with had encouraged me to forget to ring in a few drinks, a shift, and pocket the cash. And for some stupid reason, I did it. I grew up in the church. I knew better. I hadn't stolen a dime before then, nor have I since. Thankfully, I was a terrible waitress, and you all fired me before it could amount to more than a few hundred dollars total. It's been 20 years, but I still carry great remorse. I'm very sorry that I stole from you. Please accept my apology and this money as a repayment, plus 20 years of interest. May God forever bless you and your family. A thankful former employee. It's an incredible letter. It's a, it's a story that reconciliation is possible even after so much time has passed. Uh, there's a lot of integrity in this letter, an integrity between someone's belief and then their actions. But I want to ask a question. What if the person in this situation who had been a waitress a long time ago had stolen this money, what if they just sent a note but there was no money? Just a letter without the cash. Would it have made the news? Would anybody have shared it on Twitter? Would it have been as inspiring? I don't think so. It was this woman's apology plus her willingness to bear the cost that so inspires us when we read this letter and hear this story. She's saying, I'm willing to bear the cost to make things right with you because reconciliation, because you are more valuable to me than the $1,000. When someone bears the cost, it's saying reconciliation is more valuable, more valuable to me than this money. You are more valuable to me than the cost. And in the, in the story on CNN, the owner is actually saying, I want to find this person. Who are they? It's anonymous. I want to send them back this money. You know, when we're wronged, or when we wrong someone, when we're in a conflict, when we're in tension, when there's a breakdown in our relationships, there's always a cost to get to reconciliation. Sometimes it's great. It doesn't just disappear. It has to be absorbed. It has to be paid somehow. How can we deal with this? How do we absorb the cost? I think the best answer, as I was reflecting on this and processing, it comes from Luke chapter 7. It's a story from the ministry of Jesus. If you have your Bible, you can turn there, but I want to explain it. It's a story where Jesus was invited to dinner at the home of a Pharisee. And Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. They were very legalistic. And many times, um, 
They veered towards coercion and command in order for people to just externally look right and do right. Well, Jesus was at this home. He was invited to eat with him. And as he entered the Pharisee's house and he was sitting at his table, this other woman came in. And everybody knew that this other woman was what they called a sinner. She was an outcast. She had a reputation. She was not welcome with religious people. She came in, and as soon as she came in, she began going to the feet of Jesus and weeping. She had brought her most expensive perfume. She broke it. She put it all over his feet. She was weeping and washing his feet. And internally, this Pharisee, his name was Simon, he was thinking something. It's in verse 39. This man, Jesus, if he were a prophet, he would know who and what kind of woman this is, who is touching him. She is a sinner. And he was being very offended by all this happening at his table, at his house. What is happening here? And Jesus, he knew his thoughts. He said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon said, say it, teacher. And then Jesus told a very short story. He said, a creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. That's a year and a half of salary. And another owed 50. It's about two months' worth of salary. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. Jesus said, you've judged correctly. And turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she's anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, though they are many, are forgiven. That's why she's loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Jesus was saying, Simon, if you knew two things, it would completely change you. One, how great a sinner you are. You're on equal ground with this woman. Two, if you knew this, how much God loves you. Despite and in your great sin, you are so valuable to him, he will take on the full cost of forgiving your great sins so you would be reconciled to him. God's not passionate about forgiveness or reconciliation as an idea. He's passionate about you. He loves you. And he wants you in relationship with him. If you knew these two things, you would be weeping and washing my feet and giving me your most valuable possession out of love for me. And you would have the resources from me to forgive others much and love much. To the, extent, to the extent that you reject or forget or downplay those two things, your resources and love and your ability to forgive will shrink. Last week, as we began our study of Philemon, I asked us all to consider how might God be calling us to reconciliation in, in a broken and messy and complicated situation in our lives? Who is your Onesimus? I don't know if someone or something came to mind for you, but I just want to ask you, take another week to consider the question, how might God be calling you 
to move towards someone in the way of reconciliation. One final thought. Though it's never quick or easy or painless, with true reconciliation comes a refreshment to us and to all who are touched by it like nothing else. In verse 7 and in verse 20 in Philemon, Paul says in verse 20, May I benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Earlier on in verse 7, he said, You've refreshed so many people. Now refresh me again. That word, refresh. He's saying, refresh my splunkna. Refresh my affections. It's a similar phrase that was used at the time to describe an army when they were resting from battle. They were not in the battle. They were not in the fight anymore. They were away from it. They laid down their weapons. They could eat. They could rest. There was no more fighting. Some of us have been fighting for so long in a conflict, in a strained and a broken relationship. Some of us have been in that battle for so long. Friends, we can have refreshment. We can give to others a taste in the gift of refreshment. We lay down our weapons and we stop fighting and we follow Jesus, our reconciler. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you entered into our world so fully identifying with us that we might be reconciled to you. And I pray this morning that we wouldn't hear the call to reconciliation as some kind of bare command, but we would hear it from you, our great reconciler, the one who says, we are your dear brothers and sisters. We are your dear heart, that we are sons and daughters of the Father who loves us so much that he would take on the cost, the full cost, to forgive us, that we might be reconciled to him. As you bring situations, as you bring people to mind, Lord, I pray um, that you would help us keep our eyes fixed on you, that you would give us the resources that we don't have in and of ourselves to find grace and compassion, the same grace and compassion and forgiveness we've been given, that we might give it away. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.